Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. I'm going to read that again. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. And if you have a highlighter, highlight this part. As was his custom since early days. I wanted to start off by reading the scripture to uh, enforce the idea that prayer is of vital importance. It is to be prioritized above everything else. Prayer should not be used as a spare tire alone. Prayer should be something that we engage with on a regular basis, a daily basis. The Bible says we are to pray without ceasing. Daniel here, the Bible says he's in a tough, tough situation. People are conspiring to kill him, throw him into a lion's den. Get him to stop praying. And what does he do? The scripture makes it very clear, as was his custom. He already, this was his daily routine anyways. He didn't do anything more, uh, anything differently. He didn't change things up. It was his custom. He refused to back down from prayer. Whether things were, times were prospering or times were difficult, he prayed. As was his custom, that day he prayed three times. As was his custom since early days. You have to... You have to view prayer as of utmost importance to your life. If you are too busy to pray, you're too busy in life. If you're too busy to pray, you're too busy in life. Daniel, think of it this way. Daniel is the prime minister of Babylon. He's like outside of Nebuchadnezzar, or I think it's Darius at this time, outside of Darius, There's no one that has a higher authority than Daniel in the entire realm of Babylon. Daniel, as a high-level official and politician, do you think he had nothing else to do that day? Do you think that his, his day was pretty much void of responsibility? Daniel had a lot of stuff to do. Daniel was preoccupied with, I'm sure, dozens of daily tasks, meetings that he had to, uh, that he had to go to. People he had to meet with, dignitaries that he had to sit down to eat with and and, and talk politics and all that. Daniel was a busy dude. And yet the scripture makes it very clear that he never lost sight of the fact that it was the hand of God that caused him to rise. And it's also the hand of God that's going to sustain and preserve him at that level. I heard Bishop Dag Heward Mills say this. Your prosperity is not the signal to stop praying. Daniel did not see his prosperity and the high levels that God had brought him to as a signal to stop praying. He never, the Bible says he prayed three times that day as was his custom since the early days. He recognized 
Prayer and fasting is the thing that brought me to the level I met, and prayer and fasting is that which is going to sustain me at this level. Prayer, uh, Daniel understood that prayer was of more importance than anything. Now, understand this. Education is important. Marriage is important. Going to work is important. Having relationships is important. Enjoying yourself, going to a restaurant, having some leisure activities, those are important things. But nothing is more important than prayer. Absolutely nothing can replace prayer in your daily activities. There's people who make time and schedule uh, act, um, fun activities into their week. There's people that schedule, uh, some people that like to watch a movie before going to bed or shows or whatever, they schedule that into their day. There's people that schedule eating into their day. Think of it, eating is important. I'm not saying eating's not important, eating is important. But how is it that we schedule three meals a day into our lifestyle and yet many will neglect to schedule even just half an hour of prayer into their day. Do you understand that man has God has created us as a spirit being and that spirit being longs to commune with the Father who is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. You have even heathen people who remember they too are spirit beings. You have heathen people, success gurus, that they will tell people in order to be successful, you must schedule time of meditation into your day. Now their meditation is secular and sometimes demonic, oftentimes is demonic, where they're just doing incantations. You know, you can talk, uh, Anthony Robbins, he talks about looking into the mirror and just saying, you are great, you are this. Do You know, rep repetition and incantations of how great you are, you can do it, I've got inner strength, all that garbage, that's demonic. Because you are nothing without the help of God. You are nothing. You are zero without the grace of God. But I find it interesting that you have success gurus that encourage people who desire success to at least take 15 to 20 minutes a day to meditate. Well, that's just their way of replacing what we as Christians know as prayer. Because man longs to commune with our, our Father who is spirit. And so if we're going to schedule food into our day, if we're going to schedule meetings with people, if we're going to schedule a social life into our day, if we have time where we sit down and we go on Instagram and we spend time just unwinding, we should be scheduling daily into our lifestyle a time to pray. Money is important. Marriage is important. But a good, life, a good prayer life is of utmost importance. And I'll say it again. If you are too busy to pray, you are too busy. There's things that you can cut out if you're too busy to pray. Well, no, you don't understand. I have children. I too have children. But there's times that you can have uninterrupted. Some, you know, maybe if your children, they wake up uh, at 8 a.m. If you have great children, they wake up at 8 a.m. You can wake up at 7 a.m. and schedule time into your, into your day to pray. If your children wake up at 6 a.m. or 5.30 and you haven't been, you can't, you're not going to wake up at 4 or 5 or 5 or 4.30 or whatever. You can schedule time later on in the day when they're in bed. But there should be a time. Prayer should not be given spare time. Prayer should be given a set time. Prayer should not be given spare time. Prayer should be given a set time. And so I wanted to read out of Daniel 6 to show you a busy guy who found time to pray. If you're going to go through this time of prayer and fasting and you're not going to pray, 
or you're going to give prayer very uh, minimal time in your life, then you might as well just eat. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying the whole purpose of fasting is not so that we can get a spiritual badge on our chest that says, I've fasted 21 days. And you can go around telling everyone, saying how spiritual, spiritual you are because you fasted. Listen, there are people who are not spiritual that fast. There are people who belong to other religions of this world that fast. Just fasting does not make you a spiritual person. Your fasting must be complemented with the reading of the word and prayer for it to become effective and produce magnanimous results in your life. I pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that a grace will come on you. A grace to pray without ceasing. A grace to pray and not lose heart. Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 that men ought always to pray and never to lose heart. I pray whatever that's come in you that has caused discouragement, that has taken you out of the place of prayer where you've given up and you said there's no point in praying. Whatever devil that's lied to you by speaking those things to you that there's no point to prayer. That you've prayed before, you've tried that, it didn't work out quite like you thought it would and so there's no purpose or point in praying. Every voice of discouragement in the name of Jesus gets neutralized right now and by the power of the Holy Ghost, I pray that a reinvigoration of your prayer life would come to you right now. That God would dip you in the kerosene of his spirit and set you ablaze. That you would burn with passion in prayer. That there would be a restored fervency in your prayer life. That there would be no lack of diligence as you pray. That there would be a pressing that would rise up out of your spirit as you pray. That the dull mundanity of religious praying would leave your life and that a fresh life, a fresh excitement would be restored into your prayer life today in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. All right, let's get in it before I get carried away with other things like I did yesterday. Let's get through the five key players that will maximize your time of prayer in fasting. Number one, get this and you can write it down if you're taking notes. Number one, be specific when you pray. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Be specific when you pray. If you're just praying general prayers, Lord, whatever you want. God, there's no faith that is expressed when you just say, Lord, whatever you want. God in his omniscience, he is all-knowing. In his omniscience, he desires to hear your specific prayer request, what's coming out of your heart. Remember, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he shall give you what? Not what he thinks you need. He'll give you the desires of your heart. It's religion that strips that out of people. It's religion that gets people to feel bad for having specific requests. There's people who say, you know, they've got some sort of chronic ailment, but it's not deadly, but they have a chronic ailment and they'll believe God for prayer. But then some religious nutcase will come out of the woodwork and say, hey, 
You shouldn't be asking God to heal you. At least you can live. There's other people that have terminal illnesses. They should be the ones asking God for healing. As for you, as if God is limited in power and his ability to distribute his healing power to our world, that he's got to kind of ration that healing power. Remember, God doesn't have to ration squat. He doesn't have to ration money. He doesn't have to ration power. He doesn't have to ration his healing power. He doesn't have to ration his ability to help people. He has more than enough power to go around a hundred million times over and still not be tired. Remember the Bible says in Isaiah, the Lord God is the everlasting God. He neither wearies nor does he faint. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow fatigue. He doesn't wear out. God's not a man. This is a revelation for some people. God is not a man. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't get tired. He's not limited in his ability to um, receive prayer. As if, well, how can I pray in Montreal when I know there's people praying in Korea at the same time? And if there's 100,000 people praying at the same time, how do I know my prayers are getting through to heaven and God's paying attention to me? Because God is all-present and God is all-knowing and God is all-powerful. He doesn't have ADD. He doesn't have to shut some people off from praying so that he can finally pay attention to others. He doesn't have a split uh, uh, attention problem. He can, he can multitask times infinity he can listen to every single person praying in a you know you have prayer meetings where there's maybe 500 people in one room praying storming heaven all at once and there's some people there that are saying how could God receive everything at once people are praying for specific things on their own cases their own situations that's why it's, there's a mystery to it we're not you can't understand God you are a finite person you are a finite being we have an inability. Matter of fact, science has proven this. You can study it on your own time. Science has proven that multitasking is fiction. There's no true ability to multitask because you're either, you're going to give one thing priority over another. One, one of those things that you're multitasking on is going to lose quality. It's going to lose quality. Human beings are incapable of truly multitasking. Jesus said you can't even serve two masters. You'll either be loyal to one or despise the other. You, you'll be loyal. When you multitask, you'll be more loyal to one thing over the other. Even if it's a 51-49 split, there's going to be one that you give more attention to than the other. God, that doesn't, that doesn't, um, that, that doesn't apply to God. God can truly multitask. He can give 100% attention to you praying in Connecticut and me praying in Montreal, people praying in Africa and those in Asia all at the same time. If we had an hour of prayer all at the same time, universally, globally, throughout the entire earth, and every single Christian on earth was praying at the exact same time, God would be able to receive every single prayer all at once and not miss or skip a beat. Hallelujah. But God wants you to be specific. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 20, 29. This is what the Bible says. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sat by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to highlight that in your Bible. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
God is asking you that today, here and now. What do you want me to do for you? So many people that have been religiously brainwashed have, have like blown God off on that question. God's asking, what do you want me to do for you? And the reply has always been, oh Lord, you know. No, he wants to hear from you. What did the blind men answer? Oh Lord, we're blind, but that's not important. You, you give us what you see is fit to give us. You, you know all things. You know our hearts better than we know ourselves. Give us what we need. They didn't answer that. They got beyond the religious jargon. They said, Lord, and you know, before I say that, it's interesting to note that in those days, blind people didn't have sunglasses like Ray Charles. They didn't have sunglasses where you couldn't tell whether they were blind or not. It's not like it was a sunny day. Everyone was wearing sunglasses and Jesus pulled some guy out of the crowd, didn't realize he was blind and said, hey, what would you like me to do for you? And then he took off his glasses and Jesus said, oh my bad, I didn't know you were blind. Here, let me give you some sight. They didn't have sunglasses. They didn't have an ability to hide their blindness. They knew. Jesus knew very well the guy was blind. He either had his eyes closed or his eyes open. His eyes open, there would have been a cloudy substance, something that would have displayed his blindness. It wouldn't have been a mystery. And yet, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, either Jesus is a very insensitive person that saw the guy blind and said, what do you want? As like a joke, he was mocking him, which obviously he was not mocking the blind man. Or Jesus was trying to get the man to voice his request so as to express and release and turn loose his faith for the reward, which would be his eyes coming open. And that's what I believe it is. Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? They said, Lord, that our eyes would be open. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. Specificity in prayers will give us a clear definition of what the answer to our prayers will be. When you're not specific in prayer, if they had just said, Lord, whatever you want, well, Jesus would have said, then as your faith is, so be it unto you. They wouldn't have received their sight. And they would have been confused whether Jesus even touched them at all. They would have been confused. Did, did, did something happen? Well, I don't know. I felt like something in my heart, but they would have been totally confused. But because they were specific, when Jesus answered, it was very clear, Jesus answered. When you're not specific, when you're very broad in your praying, oftentimes people that are broad in their prayers give credit to coincidence or chance, or luck, when things actually happen. Many times, people that are broad or vague in their prayer will give credit or acknowledge luck. Well, that was a coincidence. Can't believe that happened. Or, even worse, they won't even acknowledge anything. It'll happen, but it'll be such a broad thing, they won't even, they won't even take time to acknowledge that God has wrought this thing. When they said, Lord, we want to receive our sight, their eyes came open. They didn't have to question whether or not, whether or not Jesus was the source of that miracle happening. So that's number one reason why you should be specific. Number two reason you should be specific in prayer is because it seems that God is limited or restricted to do only what we can ask. God is limited or restricted to do only what we ask. Genesis 20, we just read Matthew 20, first book of the New Testament, chapter 20. Let's go to Genesis 20, first book of the Old Testament, chapter 20. 
I'm going to prove this to you, that God seems to be limited and restricted to do in our lives only what we ask. James 4, I read this yesterday, James 4 verse 3 says, you have not because you ask not. So when you don't ask specifically, guess what? You'll specifically receive nothing in return. There was a time where I think it was R.W. Shambach that was running a prayer line in his meeting and people were lined up to receive prayer and he went about laying hands on everyone and he'd ask them, what would you like? What would you like? And there was this one lady that said, oh, whatever the Lord wants. And so he put his head on her head, his, his hand on her head and said, Lord, kill her. And she immediately said, no, 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 I don't want that. Well, then obviously that's not just anything. You want something. Make it specific. Be specific. I'll say it again. Specificity in prayers is what gives us a clear definition of what answers to our prayers will look like. Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20 and verse 3. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay the righteous nation also? Didn't Abraham say to me, she's my sister? And she, even herself, said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for, she is a, for he is a prophet. Listen to this, verse 7, Genesis 20, verse 7. Therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you don't restore her, know that you will die, you and all that are yours. Verse 17 says, So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his children, uh, his female servants, so that they bore children. So you see here, God visited Abimelech's life and his family when he took Sarah. Abraham's wife and some sort of misfortune came to the house in a dream at night God appears to Abimelech and says Abimelech you're a dead man unless you you loose that woman for he's a she's a prophet's wife but he goes on a step forward and says after you've released Sarah ask Abraham to pray for you notice it's interesting because God was Appearing to Abimelech directly in conversation. Abimelech could have, I mean, God could have easily have just said, release Sarah and I myself without any, any uh, outside force, I myself, I will heal you without any, anybody else's help or anybody else's prayers. He was directly conversing with Abimelech. Why didn't he just say, lose Sarah and I'll touch you right then and there? Why did he say you should ask Abraham afterward to pray for you? And when he prays for you, he will heal you, your wife and your female servants so that they'll bear children again. Obviously, it's because God is somehow restricted or limited to what we ask him for. God could have easily have just healed Abimelech without Abraham's prayers, but for some reason, and it's a mystery. We don't know why God does things this way. It's just how he does it. God's a faith God, perhaps he desires to see his children operate in faith so as to uh, provoke his intervention. That's probably the reason. John Wesley said, it seems like God will do nothing on the earth unless man prays. 
John Wesley, founder of one of the Great Awakenings, said, it seems that God will do nothing on the earth unless a man prays. I, someone else, I, I don't know who it is that said it, but someone else said, without God, man cannot do anything. And without man, God will not do anything. Without God's help, man cannot do anything. But without man's prayers, God will not do anything. Why didn't God just restore Abimelech directly since they were already in conversation? It goes down to, it, go, it comes down to our responsibility. We have a responsibility in faith to make specific requests as to what we desire to see in life in order to release God's intervention in our affairs and bring about a manifestation of whatever he's promised from the word of God. That is listed throughout the entire scripture. You have Isaiah chapter 38. Hezekiah is given a terminal diagnosis. God by the prophet says, you will die in the sickness, Hezekiah. What did Hezekiah do? Oh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. What can we do? No, he turned to face the, the temple in Jerusalem. And he began to pray and he cried out to God and said, God, heal me. He said, remember how I served you in my youth. Now I ask you to heal me. He, he was specific. He didn't say, Lord, I know you see it fit to kill me before my time. And I'm just going to trust the plan and the process and all of this. No, he said, God, I honestly don't want to die right now. I'm not interested in going to the grave early. If I go to the grave, can the dead praise you? I still feel like I've got juice. I've got fuel. I've got things to do. I've got a call to fulfill. I've got an assignment to keep. I've got a gospel to preach. And he said, God, restore my health. What did the Lord say? Isaiah, go back and tell Isaiah, you've been listening to faith preachers, haven't you? Mm, that's that hyper faith stuff. I told you to be where. No, he said, go back and tell Hezekiah. I've added 15 years because he's cried out to me specifically. And I'm sure if Hezekiah had said, Lord, I don't just want 15 years, I want 25 years, God would have given it to him. Why? Because he said, the Bible says, ask and you shall receive. The Bible says in, uh, in the book of Psalms that he has not denied the request of our lips. That's in Psalm 3, I believe it is. He has given and have not denied the request of our lips. In Psalm 84, 11, it says, God is our shield and our son. He gives glory and grace and no good thing does he withhold from them that do walk uprightly. He's not withholding anything. The only thing that's preventing us from receiving what God has is our inability to ask. And then secondly, I'll say people who do ask are not asking specifically. I'll tell you a story. There was a man called Yungi Cho, David Yungi Cho, a great man of God who pastored at one time the largest church in the entire planet. And he was in America preaching and a woman came to him who was unmarried and was uh, aging. She was in her 30s now and she was disappointed because she wanted to get married. And she had prayed many times for God to uh, hook, hook her up with a, a great man of God and get married and have children and have a family and so on. And so she came to Yungi Cho and said, I don't understand why God has not answered my prayers. I've prayed relentlessly. I've persevered. I've prayed. I've done everything I know to do. And yet I still am single. Yungi Cho replied, have you ever told God what kind of spouse you desire? 
said, well, no, he knows me. He knows what I need. I've just left it up to him. Every time I pray, I say, God, send me the man that you know I need. And Yonggi Cho, he chuckled and he replied. He said, that's not how it works. You need to write down on paper everything that you're looking for in a man. Have goals, have objectives. Now, I'm not saying write down things that are not important. Like he needs, yeah, he needs blonde hair or he needs red hair or he needs uh, uh, blue eyes. He absolutely, now I'm not saying you can't do those things. You can absolutely do, do those things. But I think there are some people who have written down some general things that are needed in their man, but then the specifics don't quite line up. Oh, he's got everything else. He's a man of God. He prays. He's a great encouraging person. He's got integrity. He's good looking. He's got this. But one of his toes bends in slightly rightwards and ah, I don't know if I can do that. There's some people that are so high-minded and they're so uh, picky that God sent 15 different guys that would have fit the criteria that they've desired and what he sees fit that they need and they've totally blown every single one of them off. That, that's a problem. I'm not saying being specific to the point where you're annoying and God's in heaven like, angels, can you play a harp or something? These, I, I've, I've sent them like six guys. I've sent them seven guys. I, I've done everything I know to do. These people are frustrating me. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. However, there is a place where you should have in your notebook if you're believing God for a spouse or something else, a job. What kind of job do you want? So anyways, he asked her, what kind of spouse do you want? So she wrote, she wrote down, I'd like, uh, I'd like, uh, <laughs> Hope wrote, I told the Lord I wanted a husband older than me. John was born six days before me. Just made the cut. <laughs> That's funny. That's very funny, actually. Uh, so this, this lady, uh, Yungi Cho, tells her to go and write down like, do you want a tall husband? Do you, what kind of job, what field of work do you want him to be in? What kind, of, uh, what kind of family? Whatever. All these specific things. And he says, write them down. So she started to write all these things down in her notebook. And uh, the next year, Yonggi Cho goes back to the same church. And this lady approached. Now, understand, David Yonggi Cho, great man of God, pastored a church of over 800,000 people, very highly sought out for to preach conferences He's been around the world. He's probably pre he probably preached in like 80 nations of the world. He probably encountered and met at least 100,000 people, uh, more than that, 500,000 people personally, like shaking hands with throughout his travels. So he's not going to remember everyone along the way. So this lady comes up to him the, week, the year after, and she's got her husband in, with her. And uh, she says, Brother Cho, uh, do you remember we prayed last year? And he's like, what for? Because he didn't remember. So we prayed for a husband. Well, here he is. She took out her notebook and it was exactly everything she wrote down specifically in that notebook. Young Cho tells another story of when he was starting out in the ministry. He's from South Korea. South Korea was not always the very uh, wealthy and affluent nation it is today. At one point, it was very, very poor before Christianity came into the nation. Christianity always prospers a nation. You look at every nation that has a Christian um, Christian background or a Christian foundation, Judeo-Christian values implemented in society, they always become prospering nations. They always come out of obscurity, out of poverty, and into prosperity. So South Korea at one point, before Christ, before there was an invasion of the gospel, was a very uh, impoverished nation. And so he was starting out in the ministry, he was probably about 17, 18 years old, and he had to do uh, his house visits by walking everywhere. And he didn't want to do that anymore. He wanted to have a bicycle. At the time, a bicycle was a very, very nice thing to have. We're talking about the 40s now. So he 
begins to pray that God would give him a bicycle and that God would give him uh, also and his uh, he had a room that he had where he would conduct his meetings but he didn't have a nice chair or a desk he had this very cheap flimsy stuff and so he was asking God for a desk a chair and a bicycle so that he can carry on his ministry and um, and fulfill what God had called him to do and he prayed and prayed and prayed and he was frustrated this is where he got the whole specifics thing from he prayed and prayed and prayed. Nothing happened. Finally, he complained to God. He said, God, I I'm giving up. Like, I've been asking you for a bicycle for like six months now and nothing's happened. I've been doing this every single day. Why haven't I received the bicycle? You know what the Lord replied to him? What kind of bicycle do you want? I want to hear from you. That's what the Lord replied to him. He said, what kind of chair do you want? And what kind of desk would you like for, the, for your ministry office? Young Cho stepped back. He never heard that before, never heard it preached before. He thought the same way most people think. God's all-knowing. He surely knows what kind of bicycle I need and want. And then that, that day, everything changed. So he wrote down on a piece of paper the exact bicycle he wants. He, he, he wrote down he wanted an American-made bicycle. Then he wrote down what kind of desk. He said, I want a mahogany wood desk and the specific um, uh, size of it. He then wrote down what kind of chair he wanted. He didn't want just a regular plastic chair. He said, I want one of those uh, executive chairs that can swivel and can move back and forth that has wheels on it. That's the type of chair I want. And he said, in Jesus' name, amen. Lift it up to God now. Well, two weeks later, an American missionary was going back home to South Korea who had brought his bike over to South Korea for the duration of his missions trip. When he uh, was about to board the plane, he felt from the Lord or he was going to go to the airport, he felt from the Lord to not take the bike, but to give it to a, a Korean pastor that was in town. And there was only one that he knew of that was young, starting out in the ministry, David Yonggi Cho. So he went to Brother Cho, Pastor Cho, and he gave him his bicycle. It was an American-made, strongly, made, greatly built, you know, built-to-last type of bicycle. He ended up getting his bicycle. Well, that was a sign that the rest was coming. A couple of weeks later, I don't know the exact details of the story, but somehow he ends up getting a desk, which was mahogany, given to him, given to him. It's not like he was going around telling everybody, I got a mahogany desk, I'd like a mahogany desk. He sent out letters, newsletters to all his partners. I would really like a mahogany desk. He didn't do any of that. He just prayed and left the rest up to God. The next, because uh, you have some people that they're believing God for something, but their Facebook status is updated every single day with exactly that. Believing God for a new couch. It looks like this. You can buy it here. Here's the link on Amazon. Like, you're not believing God for anything. You're a glorified beggar that's using spiritual things to just camouflage the entire beggarly process that you've gone through. P quit being like that. If you're like that, if you're the type of person that the moment you need something, you immediately go on Facebook and... and panhandle digitally for people to give it to you, quit doing that. It actually, it ticks God off. God wants to be the source of supply for everything that you have need of. So he got his mahogany desk and then the executive chair delivered to his office. I forget the details of the story, but it was supernatural. And uh, there he had a couple of weeks later after being specific. Sometimes what's holding back the answer to your prayers is that you haven't gotten into the specifics. Now, I'm going to get into the other side of this because some people can be specific and foolish. You cannot, and I repeat, you cannot pray for another person's spouse to marry you. 
You cannot pray for God to bind children in the womb as you go out and sleep with different women. Say, God, just bind them, that there's no children, that they would, uh, that there'd be no fertility there. That you can't do that. You're 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 dumb. You're stupid if you're doing that. There's people who don't use contraceptives in marriage, and then they, Lord, we just pray that there'd be no children. You can't do that. It's it's called nature, and God desires us to be fruitful and multiply. Anyways, you can't bind children in the womb. There are people who do that. Trust me. I know. You cannot pray for your boss to fall sick because you don't want to go into work today. Very stupid and wicked. You cannot be specific with God so that, God, would you kill my mother-in-law? You can't do that. There, there are people who... Twist the whole message of what things soever you desire when you pray. Believe that you've received it and you shall have it. They twist it and use it for wicked things. There's people who are praying, Lord, what things soever you desire. And then you know what happens is because there's people that actually believe that way and it's totally wrong, they pollute the entire message of faith and give people a sour taste in their mouth to the faith message because they bunch us up all in the same category of people. Oh, those are those name it, claim it guys. That they can just name anything. Well, if that's the case, God, I, I want $500 million deposited in my bank account tonight. I, I name it, I claim it. Oh, it didn't happen. Yeah, because you didn't even go to work today. You can't pray for a mansion in luxury cars when you haven't even lifted your finger off your desk, out of your bed, I mean, to, to, to get yourself to a desk and put in work. There's people that have foolish prayer requests. You can be specific and foolish. Don't be foolish. When you pray, remember, God, God is not mocked. God is not mocked. And He can't be deceived and He can't be manipulated. Locate it in the Word of God, what you're desiring and praying for. Make that your target and pray in light of it. Elijah was specific when he prayed for a downpour of rain. He didn't stop until he saw what he specifically prayed for. See, that's what happens. When you're not specific, you stop halfway. You don't even get the full manifestation of what God wants to do. You stop halfway because, oh, I mean, there's, that's progress, right? Elijah said that he was praying for a downpour, a torrential downpour, a storm. When he saw a cloud come out of the sea that was the size of a man's hand, he didn't stop there and say, well, it's progress. How many of you know we pray but how God answers us is up to him. That's not in the Bible. I'm telling you, that's not anywhere in the Bible. How many of you know, we can offer up our prayers to God, but what happens after that is entirely up to him. It's not in the Bible. Elijah prayed for a storm. He saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. What did he do? He didn't stop there. He kept believing and confessing until he heard the sound of the abundance of rain coming. And he told Ahab, prepare your chariot and go, for I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. And what happened? The clouds became black and threatening, and rain fell. That was his target, and he hit the target. If your prayers have a small target, meaning you're very vague in what you're praying for, it's a small target, it's going to be very difficult. Listen to this. When you're doing archery, a couple of years ago, I went to an archery thing with my wife. We for fun. If there's no target, I'm never going to hit it. It's impossible to hit a target that doesn't exist. 
It's hard to hit a small target, very hard to hit a moving target, impossible to hit a target that doesn't exist. If your faith doesn't have a target, it ain't gonna hit anything. Think of it this way. If I wanted to get to Colorado, I got into a car, and I just started driving, and just hoping I'm gonna get to Colorado, amen? We're going to Colorado. I'm on a road. Roads go to Colorado. There's, there has to be a road that goes to Colorado. I just got on any random road and just started driving. I might end up in northern Quebec or Nunavut for that matter. I might end up in, in, in some foreign territory that I've never been to. Maybe I'll end up somewhere that has a mountain and there's snow on it, like Vermont. And I might think I'm in Colorado. I've hit Colorado. This, it looks like Colorado. This must be Colorado. I think I've hit Colorado. But because I didn't punch it into the GPS and specifically target Colorado in where I was going, anywhere that looks kind of like Colorado, I might deem as Colorado. When you become specific with your prayers, you're not going to settle for anything less than. You're going to keep believing and persevering until you see the fullness of what you've, believing, you've been believing for. Philippians 4 says, make your requests known to God. I challenge you throughout this fast. Write down, I've written down in my own things, seven things I'm believing God for this year. And I've already seen some come to pass already. But I'm believing God for seven things. Write them down. Actually take out a pen and a paper and write them down. Make your requests known to God. And the Bible says, he'll answer you. Make your requests known to God. How many of you have unspoken prayer requests? There's no such thing. Make your requests known to God. So number one, be specific in your prayers. Number two, structure your prayers as a praise and thanksgiving sandwich. Don't just barge into, into the throne room of God, shaking your fist at God, saying, God, I need this now. Lord, I can't believe this is... This is happening. I need your help here. Don't barge in. There is a process. There is an order. There is a way to approach God. In earthly kingdoms and nations, you can't just barge into the Oval Office without an appointment. And even with your appointment, there's a procedure to coming into the Oval Office and meeting with the President of the United States. There is a heavenly procedure that we can find in Psalm 100 that shows us the way in to the Holy of Holies. Yes, we have the blood of Jesus. Yes, we have the name of Jesus. But Psalm 100, 100 gives us insight as to who actually gets God's attention and those who are barred at the gate. Psalm 100, verse 1. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Come before his presence with complaining. No, come before his presence with singing. Even if you feel like complaining, do the opposite. The flesh wants to complain. Sing. One way to really smack complaining out of your life is to just sing. Sing unto the Lord. Sing a, a, a praise song. Sing a song of thanksgiving. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Verse 4, Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his course with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his, into his course with praise. 
That shows you that unless you are in thanksgiving, you cannot enter his gates. Thanksgiving is the passcode into the very presence of God. Psalm 22 verse 4 says, Thou, O Lord, inhabits the praises of your people. God inhabits our praises. So if you want God's presence to flood your prayer room as you pray, you can't do that. You can't bypass praise to get that. Praise is what ushers in divine presence. Praise and thanksgiving is what compels God to give you his attention. Praise and thanksgiving is what allows you to access the very inner courts of God, to have audience with God so that whatever thing you ask in prayer, you receive. Don't just barge into, your, into prayer with your request in hand like you're like a you're hitting a vending machine because it, it chewed up your money and didn't give you anything. That's a sure way to never have a, a prayer answered. God's not some broken vending machine that we have to hit in order for it to cough up what you feel like you've been uh, cheated on. There's a process to go through. Even Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. That's a form of praise. You're praising God. Holy is your name. You're the most high God. You're El Shaddai. The psalmist constantly, not just in Psalm 100, throughout the entire psalm, talks about coming before his presence with thanksgiving. Magnify the Lord. Let us exalt his name together. Let us approach his throne. You can't bypass that. And you study Jesus' life, every time he did a major miracle, it always was preceded with prayer, uh, with praise and thanksgiving. When he was going to multiply the five bread and two fish, he, John chapter 6, the Bible says, he broke the bread, blessed it, and gave thanks and distributed it. He gave thanks. Before he can distribute and multiply the bread, he gave thanks. When Jesus resurrected Lazarus in John chapter 11, the Bible says, before he called Lazarus forth, he said, Father, I thank you that you hear me, and I know that you always hear me. Praise precedes God's performance on your behalf. Before Jericho's walls came down, they blew the trumpets and shouted with a voice of triumph. The Bible says in Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, let all the peoples praise you, for then the earth shall yield her increase. You're not entitled to the increase that prayer can bring you without giving God adequate high voltage praise. Look at Psalm 150. Well, I don't feel like I have anything to thank God for. Why would I thank? I need, I need to ask him for things before I can give him thanks for things that he's done for me. That's, that's a, a carnal way of thinking. Because the very fact that you're saved is reason enough to thank God. The fact that you've been redeemed by His blood. If you have nothing that you think you have to thank God for, remember for what He's done. Remember that He redeemed you by His blood. Remember how you've been forgiven by His grace. Remember how He took you out of the miry clay. Remember the deaths you should have died and you didn't die. Remember the bankruptcies you should have suffered and you didn't suffer. Remember all the things God pulled you from. Psalm 124, had it not been the Lord that was on my side. Let Israel now say, had it not been the Lord that's on my side, I would have perished in my affliction. I would have lost heart had I not believed that I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
Don't be ungrateful. Lack of gratitude will lead to your downfall in life. And it literally will get God to close his ears concerning your, your, what you're praying for. The way that you ascertain an open ear from God is by first giving thanks for what he's done. Bible says in Psalm 150, praise ye the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I don't feel like I have anything to thank God for. Are you breathing? Then you have a debt of gratitude that you owe to God. Because the very fact you woke up this morning, the Lord sustained you through the night. You laid down, you slept, and you awoke. Many people slept and did not wake up this morning. Many people put their eyes to rest for the last time yesterday. They didn't wake up this morning. Let everything that has breath praise ye the Lord. Then it says, praise him for what he has done. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him for his mighty acts. You read the Psalms, they're constantly reminiscing of what God did hundreds of years ago. In Egypt, when Israel was brought out of Egypt, he brought us forth with silver and gold. There was none weak or feeble amongst all our tribe. He sent his word. He healed us and delivered us from all destruction. Thank God for what he accomplished at the cross. That we're now seated with Christ in heavenly places. I'm telling you, as you do that, you're setting an, an atmosphere in your prayer room where God can inhabit. That's what praise does. It sets an atmosphere around you where God can invade and inhabit. And then listen to this. When God steps in, that anointing, people, I know there's many people that have been asking God for a stronger anointing during this time of fasting and prayer. Well, there's no greater way to increase the strength of the anointing on you than by being in his presence. And the cheapest access point to the presence of God is praise and thanksgiving. You know what anointing means? Anointing means to be rubbed on. That's what it means. To be rubbed on with ointment or oil. That's what anointing means. When God anoints you, he's literally rubbing on you. You've rubbed on God and he's rubbed on you. That his essence, his nature, his smell, his power, all of it begins to transfuse into you. So when you're thanking God and setting up an atmosphere of praise in your prayer closet, God's presence invades that place and he begins to rub off on you. And then his essence, his nature. That's why when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was glowing. He had been in the very presence of God. People who don't give God thanks, people who are not praise warriors, they're prayer warriors, but they're not praise warriors. Oftentimes they lack that divine glow on their life. When you praise God, he inhabits the praises of the people. And in doing that, the anointing increases as God's essence, his nature, his very being begins to, to rub off on you. Number three, number three, key to uh, maximizing this time of prayer and fasting is pray kingdom advancing prayers. Matthew 6.33, verse many people know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God. Prioritize souls when you pray. Oftentimes, we're too selfish in our prayers. It's all about give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. There is a time for give me. There is a time for give me this daily bread. There is a time for requests. There is a time to ask God for things that you desire in your heart. I don't doubt that. However, there should be 
That, that time should actually not make up much of your prayer time. Most of your prayer time should be given to praying in tongues, praise and worship, and kingdom advancement prayers. What is a kingdom advancement prayer? It's when you remember that God also has an agenda that he desires to carry out on the earth. And we're praying, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Jesus said in the Lord's prayer, the structure as to how we should pray. One of the major components of that is pray like this, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is God's will? God's will is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There should be a time in your prayer that you are storming heaven on behalf of lost people, a lost, dying, sighing, crying humanity, where you're asking God that he would, by the Spirit, raise up laborers into the harvest field that would preach the word of life to them and that the blinders of the enemy would be shattered off their life. That you know, oftentimes I'll pray prayers like this. God, you didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I would say, use me. Part of praying a kingdom advancement prayer is saying, use me to bring this everlasting gospel torch to this generation. Use my mouth. Remember in Romans 10, it says, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard? And how can they hear unless there be a preacher? And how can there be a preacher unless one goes or one is sent? When you pray kingdom advancement prayers, you are praying in line with God's word, which Jesus said, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into his harvest field. God raise up anointed apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that would go into the highways and byways and compel people into the light before it's eternally too late. There should be a great amount of time given towards praying prayers like this. Praying prayers like this. Prayers of imprecation. You see them oftentimes throughout the Psalms where, where David is praying, God, strike the, the cheek of the wicked, strike their cheekbones, let it shatter in their mouth. What he's doing there is he's saying, God, let every plotting of the devil, let every uh, agenda of wickedness be dismantled and destroyed. You know, I said it before, it seems to me that God can do nothing on the earth unless a man prays. There are demonic strongholds in societies, in cities, in regions, in families that are... Literally, those families, those people are depending upon your prayers for those strongholds to come down, to be destroyed. Now, I've preached many a times about, it, when I'm talking about evangelism, that if all you do is pray and you do nothing about it, then you're in, it's in vain. You can't just pray. You have two legs, one's to move forward, the other's to move. If you have just one leg, you're going to go in circles and you're going to be unstable. You have two legs. One is to pray, one is to preach. We pray, we preach, we pray, we preach. We don't just pray, we pray and we preach. However, there is a time to pray against the deeds of the wicked. You know, you read, let me read Psalm 7. Psalm 7, this is David praying. David said this, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for, for me to the judgment you've commanded. So the congregation of the peoples will surround you. Verse 9, 7, 9, chapter, uh, Psalm 7, 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. Let the wickedness of the wicked come to, the, to an end. 
Lord, bring the abortion industry to an end this year in my nation. Lord, bring uh, the strip clubs that plague Montreal on every street, of, uh, on every corner of St. Catherine Street. Let that wickedness come to an end this year. Shut down drug circulation. Shut down illegal drug um, distribution. Shut down the distribution of fentanyl, drug dealers that are funneling death, deadly poison into the streets of America and Canada. Shut, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end. Let there be major drug busts that arise in your city during this, this prayer and fasting season. In Jesus' name. That, I mean, that should, that's a prayer of mine. Lord, in Montreal... Let there be major drug busts that are had. Put to end. Put to an end. Bring to an end. Drug dealers that have been running unhindered for the last 20 years, establishing strongholds of addiction in this city. Let the wickedness of, a wick, of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. Father, in the, in the place of abortion clinics, Raise up churches. All the buildings that plan parenthood and abortion clinics that are going to lose, that they're going to lose as you shut them down this year. Father, let those buildings, that real estate, be occupied by churches and soul winning ministries. The just, establish the just. But the righteous God tests the hearts and the mind. My defense is of God who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Listen to this. If the wicked does not turn back after the warning, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. He'll prepare for himself. God will prepare for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. He conceives trouble. So this is defining what wickedness is. People that bring forth iniquity and conceive trouble and falsehood. People that conceive wickedness. People who are deliberately allied with hell to bring about demonic influences in their community. People who have joined hands with the devil to see to it that satanic things occur in their, in their communities. You have this in Acts chapter 19. There were idol makers that when... Paul brought revival to Ephesus. They got together and they said, we got to stop Paul. Because they had already allied with hell in fashioning these demonic idols for the people to worship and believe in. And so they allied together to try and stop Paul's work from progressing any further. You understand, the guy at the strip club is not to be blamed. It's the one who built the strip club that is wicked. God's not angry with the sinner. God is angry with the wicked every day. There's a difference between a sinner and a wicked person. The sinner is the one who's injecting his arm with heroin. He wants to stop. He's bound. A sinner is bound. A wicked person is one who has literally volunteered himself as a slave to hell and sin. There's a big difference. And God doesn't deal with the two the same way. God loves the sinner and calls them to repentance. But the wicked, the Bible says, he made a pit and he dug it out. But God will make him to fall into the very ditch which he made. His own trouble will return on his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. If he doesn't turn back, God will sharpen his sword. He will bend his bow and make it ready. 
Those are prayers of imprecation, and they're all throughout the all throughout the Bible. And if you think God doesn't operate like that anymore in the New Testament, you haven't read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13, Paul, his very first time out to preach, he goes and uh, he's trying to win the pro-council, Sergius Paulos to the Lord. And the Bible says there's a man named Elymas, a false prophet, bar Jesus, for so his name is translated, who withstood the words of Paul and sought to turn the pro-council away from the faith. Paul saw that, that witch, and he didn't say, let's keep Elymas in prayer. He pronounced judgment on him right then and there. He was holding back the work of God from reaching Sergius Paulus. There's a difference between people that are just blind and cannot see and those who go out of their way from holding back the gospel from reaching a nation. Paul says it in Thessalonians. Those men are filling up. They're filling up the full measure of their sins and their end will be destruction. Paul told, turned to Elymas and he said, you son of the devil. He actually said that. Oh, you're being harsh. That's not very Christ-like, Paul. He said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Behold, the hand of the Lord comes upon you and you'll be blind for a time. And the, the Bible says immediately scales came on his eyes and he had to be led by someone else out. Acts chapter, um, Acts chapter 12. Herod stretches out his hand to harass those from the church, has James beheaded, takes Peter, confines him to prison with the purpose of executing him the following day. The Bible says by the end of chapter 12, that same Herod who dealt harshly with the church, the people were praising him, saying the voice of a God and not of a man. And he did not give glory to God. He took the credit himself. And in that moment, an angel of the Lord struck Herod so that this is New Testament. An angel of the Lord struck Herod so that uh, he began to have boils and he died. And Josephus writes about it in his writings that he ended up dying over a span of three days where he had worms coming out of his intestinal tract and through his mouth. It was a very bad death. So if you think God doesn't deal like that anymore with the wicked, God has an agenda. He said, I will build my church. This is under the heading, Pray Kingdom Advancing Prayers. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will try, but will never be able to prevail against the advancement of the church. So how do you pray prayer, uh, kingdom advancing prayers? One, you pray that God sends out more labors into his harvest fields. Number two, you pray that anything holding back the progression of the gospel mandate be destroyed. And any wicked person that would try to stop, prevent, or hinder people from receiving Christ, be taken out of the way. And number three, how do you pray kingdom advancement prayers? By making yourself available to God. Pray like Isaiah, Lord, who will go? Send me, send me, Lord. I make myself available. Jesus prayed this in the consecration prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Prayer should have a Gethsemane moment. What does Gethsemane mean? The actual Hebrew means the place of crushing, where you're crushed, of your own will, where your own agenda, your own pursuits, your own plans are crushed and done away with. And you, like Jesus, say, not mine will, but thine be done. Not mine will. Lord, in 2023, we're starting this year out with fasting and prayer. One of the things you should be praying for is, Lord, in this year of 2023, not my will, crush me of my will. 
crucify my own passions and desires. Remove, extract, eliminate any desire or selfish, uh, any desire for self-aggrandizement or any selfish ambition that is present in my heart. Remove it, eliminate it from me. Not my will, but thine be done. You know what happens when you start praying like this? Kingdom advancement prayers. You're praying for others. You're praying to be used by God to impact others. You know what happens? You get the taste of what Job tasted of. Job 42.10. When Job prayed for his friends, when he prayed for others, the Lord restored the captivity of Job and gave him double everything he had lost. When you prioritize others in your prayer life, God will prioritize your requests and the desires of your heart. If you just go into prayer and you say, gimme, 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 and you have no Lord touch them, your gimme's will never come to you. But if you come into prayer and spend a majority of your time asking God to bless others, asking God to touch others, asking God for the salvation of others, asking God to heal others, you'll find out everything you had on your own prayer list will be automatically checked off. Hallelujah. Because whoever waters others, Proverbs eleven twenty four. whatever you water another in, that same shall you be watered in. Hallelujah. Number four, keys to praying prayers that will maximize your, prayer, your fasting this, this month. You have used his word, or you have, you have his word, you know his word, use it. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Jesus said, you will ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Whenever you approach God, it should be on the basis of his word. That way, we have an unshakable confidence and certainty that our prayers are going to be answered. When you approach God on the basis of just desire, desire is good, but desire backed by the word is the formula for answered prayer. Desire is good, but desire backed by the word is the formula for answered prayer. If you approach God just based on desire, then there's no foundation on which you can turn loose your faith because faith is beginning by the word of, faith begins with the word of God. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Anything you pray for that you can't find located in the word of God, you have no business praying for that thing. If you can't locate what you're praying for in God's word, you have no business praying for that thing. But if you, can find scriptural backing that proves to you that God desires to do for you what you're praying for, what your desire is, you have no business doubting God's integrity to perform it in your life. When you pray, find scripture to back up what you desire. If there's no scripture, you have no business praying for it. If you can find scripture, then you have no business doubting God's integrity to perform it on your behalf. God is not a man that he should lie. The Bible says in Hebrews, let me read it. Hebrews chapter 10. I believe it's chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Might be in chapter 10. Matter of fact, it might actually be in chapter 8. Let me look it up. 
just because I can't find it. And it's a great scripture. It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6. I was off. Right book, though. I got the right book. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. Hebrews chapter 6. Thus God, verse 17. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise, which is you and I, the immutability of his counsel or of his word, confirmed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation or strong conviction who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So Hebrews here is saying, God desired to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise. He wanted to show off how faithful he was, how reliable he was when he promised something. He wanted to show more abundantly to the heirs of his promise the immutability, the unchangeableness, the unwaveringness of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which one of them is, it is impossible to, for God to lie. It is impossible for God to lie. God desiring to show it by an oath. The Bible says he swore by his own self that in blessing he would bless us and in, in, in multiplying he'd multiply us. The Bible says he has honored his word above his own name. Hallelujah. If God said it, he meant it. And what he meant, he said and put it in word format. Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. Talked about this briefly yesterday. 1 John 5:14. Now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, which his word is his will, he hears us. So if we ask things not according to his word, he don't hear us. But if we ask things according to his will, then we can be confident that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition of what we've asked him of. Hallelujah. Prayer is not wishful thinking. Think of it this way. If a very rich businessman entered into the room that you're in, you could hope that he gives you money. You could hope and wish that he gives you some sort of financial reward. You can wish for it. Bill Gates walked into your church. The pastor could get all excited, hoping he's going to do something, but he might not drop a penny in the offering. But if a rich man came into, your, into the room you're in and he singled you out and he said, Brian, Lisa, Gillen, Sharon, I promise I'm going to give you a million dollars by sundown tonight. Well, then you don't have to hope for it anymore. You don't have to wish for it anymore. You have a promise. You have his word. And if the man's been faithful in time past, then you know he'll be faithful now. In prayer, we're not wishing things turn out positively. We have a promise. We have his word. He said, my covenant, I will not break, nor will I alter the words which proceed out of my mouth. Prayer is not wishful thinking. We're not hoping God does something while we pray. 
We are, Isaiah 43, 26. We are putting God in remembrance of his word, knowing full well that he's too faithful to fail, that even if men are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And God is his word. He cannot deny his word. So if you bring to God your complaint, he can deny your complaint. But if you bring to God your, his word, he cannot deny it because his word is who he is. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. John chapter 1 and verse 1 through 3. That's how you have fail-proof prayer life. I'm not coming with my own desire alone. I'm bringing your word. God, cannot, God can deny many things, but one thing he cannot deny is his word. Hallelujah. Man, I feel like that just put a confidence in some of you today. So here's my challenge to you. Whatever you're praying for on your prayer list that you have written down, for every prayer request, write down, jot down, no less than three scriptures that promise, that promise you the thing that you're desiring to happen. Write down no less than three scriptures. Because this Bible is not reading material for entertainment. It is his covenant. It's his law. It is his, it's a book of covenant promises. Write them down. When you pray, don't just say Isaiah 43 says, no, say Isaiah 43, 26 says this. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 10 says that, and quote the verse. If you're believing God for healing, God, your word says in Exodus 15, 26, that you're Jehovah Rapha. Exodus 23, 25, the Bible says that you will take sickness out of our midst and bless our bread and our water. You said in Isaiah 53, verse 5, that by your stripes, we are healed. You said, use the word as ammunition in prayer. A gun by itself cannot do much harm. You might give someone a bruise, but you can't do much harm. But if you load that gun with ammunition, it can do great damage. Prayer by itself. Many people pray. A lot of, even heathens pray. But how come there's not much damage done to the devil in their life and there's not much results coming? Because there's no ammunition in their gun of prayer. The word of God is the ammunition in the gun of prayer that loads it up. That when you fire it off, it produces wonderful things. Number five, way to, to um, maximize this time of prayer and fasting as you pray is pray using the name of Jesus. I've heard people that just pray, Lord, in thy name we pray. Don't, who's thy? Don't pray in thy name. Pray in Jesus' name. Don't be ashamed to say the name Jesus. It's a powerful name. Acts 4 and verse 12. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. There's no salvation in any other name. The name of Jesus carries power. His name is wonderful, the Bible says. It's full of wonders. When you use the name of Jesus, it's like, for example, if I gave you a checkbook and you wrote down $1 million and filled it all out except you didn't have my signature, that check is void. You, you, you need my signature. No matter what you pray for, if you don't have it signed by the name of Jesus, the check cannot be cashed in heaven's economy. Why do I say this? Because some people might say, oh, he's just being religious with his prayers now. Now you're just making it totally 
uh, structured and you're totally taken out the whole heart part of prayer. No, I'm not. This is an instruction Jesus gave, which I consider Jesus to be somewhat, somewhat of an expert in prayer, in praying. John 16, 23, Jesus said, in that day, you will ask me nothing. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name. I'm very disturbed when I see pastors and ministers and full gospel ministers who've read this, I'm sure, time and time again, praying to Jesus for things. We can communicate with Jesus. We surely can have fellowship with Jesus. But Jesus himself said, in that day, you will ask me nothing. Jesus himself said, in that day, don't ask me anything. He said, you can go to the Father in my name, and he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be made full. Verse 26 of the same chapter, it says, in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. Hallelujah. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and I've believed that I've come forth from God. Because you believe in what Jesus did, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the full gospel message, we now have this divine right and privilege. We don't go to Jesus. We go directly to the Father. When Jesus was on the earth, who did he pray to? To the Father. He said, the Father who dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Every work, every miracle Jesus prayed for, and realized in his ministry, he attributed the source of that being the Father. The Father was the one that did it all. The Father was the one that raised Lazarus from the dead. It was the Father, the, the Holy Ghost in Jesus that resurrected Lazarus from the dead. But here you have Jesus saying, in that day, you don't have to ask me anything anymore. What day is he referring to? He's referring to the day when Jesus himself would appear before the Father by his blood, obtain redemption for us. Now we, receiving Christ, are clothed with Christ that when we come before the Father, we come in the name of Jesus and we have the same audience with God the same way Jesus had audience with God. Remember, Jesus said, I thank you that you always hear me. Because I'm clothed with Christ, I also thank God that he always hears me. Jesus said, in that day, in that day when redemption has been realized and you've received Christ for yourself and you've believed on the gospel, you don't have to ask me anything. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, in my name, he will give it to you. The name. Don't shy out in using this name. God himself responds to the name of Jesus. He has promised to recognize and answer any prayer prayed in that name. Jesus gave us a blank check that we can fill with the resources of heaven. And he's endorsed it with his name. And God said, I'll back it up. With all my resources and power, I'll back it up. Hallelujah. You know who else responds to that name? Not only, not only Jesus, not only the Father, you know who else responds to the name? The devil. The devil responds to that name. The Bible says, in my name, you'll cast out devils. There's power in that name. When you're doing spiritual warfare and you're praying against spiritual forces of wickedness set up in your nation, use that name. The devil doesn't respond to just, demons, we bind you. What authority do you come in? Remember when... Those seven sons of Sceva, they said, we adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the seven sons of Sceva and whom the, de the, uh, 
the man in whom the demon was, leaped on the seven sons of Sceva, destroyed them, beat them out so that they were totally wounded and left the house naked. They, remember what they said when they turned to him? Jesus, we know. Paul, we know. Who are you? They didn't, they didn't know the name. They just like vainly confessed it because they heard Paul do exorcism in that name, but they didn't have an intimate knowledge of that name themselves, and so it didn't work for them. It's important to know what's in the name. Authority and dominion over devils and demons are in, is in the name, is inherent, is loaded up in that name. When you say the name, the Bible says just the mention, not even the repeated pleading of, just the mention of his name will cause every knee to bow and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord. Sickness bows to that name. Bible says, they will lay hands on the sick in my name and the sick shall recover. Peter went into Aeneas' house in Acts chapter 9 and he got by his bed. He was paralyzed for eight years and he said, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. He used the name. In Acts chapter 3, the man that was at the gate called Beautiful, who was a paralyzed for over 40 years. The scripture says that Peter and John looked on them and said, silver and gold we have not, but what we do have we give to you. Realize what you have in the name of Jesus. Peter and John realized what they had in the name of Jesus. They said, silver and gold ain't going to help you, buddy, but you know what will help you? I've got more than silver and gold. I've got the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, crippled limbs come back to life again and seizing him by the right hand. They lifted him up and he was made well and he leaped and he walked and he went into the temple praising God. And they said in Acts chapter 3 verse 16, what was the reason for this miracle? It's faith in that name. Yeah, the faith that comes by him has given them this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Faith in the name. Don't just say the name. Believe in the name and what the name can do for you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'll tell you another thing that the name does. It'll expedite the answer to your prayer. You ever have an employee that you worked with that unless the boss gave him the instruction, they didn't do anything? Like you can come and say, hey, buddy, you mind taking out the trash? You know, I did it yesterday. He's like, no, I'm not doing it because they're so prideful minded. Unless the boss tells them to do it. Boss comes around and says, hey, take out the trash. Sure, right away. They go around, take the trash out. They'll even like Febreze the room and the garbage and make it all nice. They only do things when the boss gives the instruction. If you work for a company and you, you have a peer and you give them an instruction and they just scoff at you and say, who the heck do you think you are bossing me around? But if let's say your boss is on vacation, but he texts you and says, have so-and-so do this. And you come and you say, hey, uh, Charles, our boss, he's commanded us that we need to do this. They're not going to scoff at you. You show them the text. Look, here you go. He told us we have to do this. We got to get this done. We got to take the trash out. We got to, you know, work on this project. He's not going to scoff at you. He's going to be quick. He's going to be quick to doing exactly what Charles said to do because you didn't just come by yourself. Though Charles is not there, you, you have now stood in a place of delegated authority. Because of what Charles texted you, the boss texted you to tell him to do something, he's, a, he's put on you a delegated authority where you now stand in a place of authority on his behalf. Though he be not there, you stand in his place in issuing out that instruction. And then what happens? The employee, though he might have been hostile towards you if you had just come by yourself, now because you're using your boss's name, he told us to do this, he, he goes and gets it done quickly in the same vein. 
You can't command demons to do anything outside of the name of Jesus. When you use that name, they're quick to scurry off and flee. They're quick to run off. They're quick to leave you alone. Because when you say something, you know, in every company, authority is from the top to the bottom, the, from, from up to down. That's how authority works. You don't have the salesman telling the CEO how things work and how things should be run. The CEO tells the salesman how things should run. In the, in, in the spiritual world, it's the same thing. There's a hierarchy. The devil's at the bottom of the chain. Jesus is at the top. The devil's under his feet. And though we walk in the flesh, we have a weapon called the name of Jesus. And if we use that name and we speak that name, it's as if Christ himself were, were standing in our stead. It's as if Jesus were giving off the order himself. That's essentially what Jesus was saying in Mark 16 when he said, in my name, you will cast out demons. You will lay hands on the sick and the sick will recover. He's saying, I'm sending you out, but not without authority. You can use my name. And when you lay hands on people, it'll be as if I were laying hands on them. When you cast out a demon and give the command to go, it'll be as if I myself were standing there in your stead and gave the command to go. When you say something, when you give a command, it'll be as if it came from my very own lips. And the same devil that can't withstand me cannot withstand the person that uses my name. Hallelujah. You have authority. So five, those are five ways to maximize your prayer life. And I finished off with the name of Jesus because that, you know, you can do the first four, but if you don't pray in the name, Jesus himself said, in that day you pray in my name. We have a name. Let's start using it. When you pray, don't say in thy name. Don't say in his name. Use the name of Jesus. Remember, there was a minister by the name of Reverend Samuel Rodriguez and they asked him to come and do a... Um, uh, like a national day of prayer for the United States and they had a rabbi come in, they had a Muslim imam come in, they had a Buddhist guy come in, they had a Catholic priest come in and they all told them in the back room, do not use, you can say God, you can say, oh, excellent one, whatever, just don't use the name Jesus. That's all we ask. Because when you use Jesus, you're, you're now zoning in with specifics. You know, you can say God, God can be anyone. God can be money, God can be Buddha, God can be uh, anything. God, God is a very generic title. But when you say Jesus, you've zoned in now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've zoned in to the God of the Bible. You've zoned in to the Son of the living God, the Christ, the Savior of the world. So the imam went on, and obviously he's not going to use the name Jesus. He prayed to, the, to God and Allah, and the other ones, they went and they did their own prayer. And Samuel Rajigas got out, and uh, the very first words that come out of his mouth were, in the name that is above every other name, the mighty matchless name of Jesus Christ, we come to you, Father, this day. And he went on to pray. And you can see the politicians on the stage, the guy specifically that had instructed them not to use that name, their face automatically lost all their Botox. They kind of frowned real strong at him. They were, not, they were very disturbed by it. Why? Because that name disturbs, it torments, it's a tormenting force for demons. It's a tormenting source of power for uh, wickedness in society. The devil doesn't know how to handle that name. It reminds him of the beating he suffered at Calvary. Use that name in prayer. He's given you the right and privilege to do it. 
He's given you the power of attorney to use it. Use that name. Use that name. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I want to ask you today, referring to that name, you can use that name all you want, but unless you know that name, you'll be like those seven sons of Sceva. It ain't going to work. Do you know the name? Do you know the one who has the name? Are you saved? Are your sins washed? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Are you living for God? Have you given your life to Jesus? Are you born again? If not, you need to do that right now. Oh, brother, how could we know that we're saved? The Bible makes it very clear. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Turn from sin, repent, and believe on the gospel. And you and your house will be saved. What begins in you will overflow into your whole household. Has there ever been a time in your life where you stood before a holy God and you said, God, I know that I've sinned and I've fallen short of the glory of God. But I also recognize within my own depravity and all that, I know that you've provided an atonement. That Jesus Christ is the gift of eternal life. I receive that gift today. Has there ever been a time where you've done that? If not, you need to do that right here and right now. There's no, no better time to do that than right here and right now. If you have done that, but you've fallen astray and you're not quite living for the Lord like you used to, and you'd like to come back on track and dedicate your life to Jesus again, get your prayer life back on track. Make January. You know, people are doing New Year's resolutions and uh, average, the stats right now is, I, I think, like most people abandon them by like tops February if they make it even out of January. New Year's resolutions... You know, they might have some temporary good. Health resolutions, eating resolutions, diet resolutions, all that. Why don't you resolve today that 2023 is going to be the year where I go all in with God. Where I'm on fire for God. It's not going to be a January fling. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I've decided to follow Jesus. There ain't no turning back. I'm putting my hand to the plow. I'm not going to be a backsliding Christian. Gone are the days of backsliding for my life. Gone are the days of lukewarm worship to God. I'm going to be red hot on fire for God. Have, have, have you come off track? Maybe a loss of a loved one, a relative. Maybe it's a loss of a job, a bad relationship. Whatever it might have been that took you off track, distracted you. The devil knocked the wind out of you. Today, God wants to put the wind back into you, get you back on track. Do, pray this with me right now. Let's pray this together. Let's make today, January 13, 2023, the day where everything turned, where you became a new creation, where you made up your mind. No more going back. I'm going forward. Come hell or high water, I'm going to endure to the end. And God's able to preserve you and present you faultless before his throne. Won't be you operating by your own strength. God never said be strong in yourself, find inner strength. That's demonic. There is no inner strength. The only strength we have is in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He'll carry you through. He'll help you. He'll, he'll, he'll do something for you today where you're regenerated, refreshed, and renewed for his service and his worship. Pray this with me. Pray this out of your mouth. Actually say these words. Say, Father... In Jesus' name, 
I believe you raised Jesus from the dead. I confess Jesus is Lord of my life. I turn from sin. I look to you. Wash me clean. Forgive me. Renew me. For today, I'm a new creation. Today, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Where I was weak, make me strong. And I'll never turn back. Give me power to live for you. In Jesus' name, I am saved. I am forgiven. Heaven is my home. God is my Father. And I'm not looking back. Amen. Amen. Now let me pray for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I curse every work of darkness that would try to uproot the seed of the gospel that was sown in their heart today. May they not be the wayside. May they be that fertile ground that indeed yields a crop and produces a hundredfold fruit in Jesus' name. Just as they've come to you today, I thank you that they're redeemed from the curse of the law. I thank you that every generational curse lifts off their life. I thank you that every uh, curse of their past, everything that may have come on them through past decisions, wrongdoing, sin, I thank you that it's all lifted, that they are redeemed by your blood. I thank you that today is the day of salvation for their house. Thank you that if they're sick, they're being healed right now. I thank you that every form of depression and anxiety is lifting off their life. In the name of Jesus Christ, they are renewed and restored. And I thank you that the same blood of Jesus that drew them to this broadcast and caused them to be born again is the same blood that shall keep them, preserve them, protect them, and cause them to endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love for you to get, on, get in contact with me on my website, salvationnow.ca. The first link that pops up is I just got saved. Click that. Fill it out. I want to hear from you. I want to get something to you free of charge. It's a little salvation package that we've prepared for you as a way to welcome you into the family of God. It has some reading material, a Bible, and uh, some books that is going to help you set you up because, you know, as you're a newborn babe in Christ. And nobody takes a newborn baby and throws it in a room and says, fend for yourself. No, you have to feed off milk. You have to feed. You have to be nourished. In the same way, the Bible says the Word of God is, is milk. As a newborn babe, the Bible says, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. I want to give you some stuff that's going to help you grow. And so I look forward to hearing from you on the website. Fill out that form. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji, or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.